Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In Matthew chapter 14, Jesus commands his disciples to feed the people with the bread of his Father's instruction, the five loaves of life-giving bread, representing the five books of Moses. Sharing that bread is the chief and only duty of Peter, the chief of the apostles, and it is the chief responsibility of the chief priests and the elders of the people for the sake of the people of Judea, whom Judas represents in Matthew chapter 27. And how did the assembly of chiefs and elders respond in the people's hour of need? What is that to us? And where was Peter? Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 1 to 5. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 408 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We thought it was grim talking about Peter, but it's much more difficult in this week's episode at the beginning of chapter 27 to hear about Judas, who represents Peter's tribe. Now, I want to take a step back and revisit something, Richard, that we spoke about last week that I think is of primary importance for our listeners. We were sitting down, Rich, you and I having a cup of coffee talking about Scripture because what else is there to talk about? And I made the comment to you that if the Apostle Peter were to walk into the diner in Egan where we were sitting, we would be obliged by duty and by honor, according to the gospel, to stand up from our seats, prostrate ourselves, and take a blessing from the Apostle Peter, because he is our elder and our senior in the scriptural narrative. Now, that might seem strange to everyone hearing us speak, because we've been insisting upon Peter's role as a betrayer and as someone who has fallen short So how could we, in one breath, talk about how terrible Peter is, but in the next breath insist that if Peter were to walk into the room right now, we would stand up and ask for his blessing and shut our mouths and deal with him as an elder, which we would, because that's how we were trained. Because Peter is our elder. Peter is a reference for us. His personality, his character is not a reference for us. His deeds are not a reference for us. 
but he has an epistle in the Lord's gospel. He beheld the resurrected Lord, and he preached the gospel, and it was committed to writing in the Lord's scripture. Now, the Lord has not come yet to separate the sheep from the goats, and Peter, like the rest of us, awaits the Lord's coming and the final judgment. But to the extent that I kiss the hand of a senior priest or celebrant, to the extent that I humble myself before a bishop or a teacher or an elder in my family, we don't just bow to teachers and priests and senior clergy, those of us from other cultures, not American culture, we kiss the hand of our parents, we kiss the hands of our grandparents, men and women, we humble ourselves before those who came before us and those who are above us. We don't do so because they are good people, because we know from Scripture that no one is good until the Lord declares you good on that day. But wicked or good, insofar as it remains to be seen, we are still in a situation where there are people above us, and we are commanded by the Apostle Paul to show respect to whom respect is due. And in this sense, we can, according to Scripture, proclaim and preach, as Scripture does, the content of Peter's betrayal. We can proclaim, as the Apostle Paul does, and as the Gospels do, when Peter functions as Satan or as a minister of Satan, and at the same time learn from Peter when he preaches, in writing, what he received from the resurrected Lord. And because in this sense he is above us, as an apostle, we submit to him. But it doesn't change the fact that in Scripture, his sins are part of the content of the teaching for our edification, which, by the way, is how Israel functions in Paul's letter to the Romans. It's how Israel functions in the whole story. And that's what we're going to hear about Judas next. With Peter, the fact that he sat at the master's feet and heard the teaching, and Jesus is in the heavens now at the right hand of the Father, we only have Peter and those whom he taught to pass this teaching down to us. It's as a function of the teaching— doesn't matter. Like you said, Father, it doesn't matter how good he is at doing the teaching. It's how good does he teach the teaching. I mean, my wife learned piano from someone who had nerve damage in his arms, and he could no longer play piano. Now, did my wife have horrible piano lessons because the teacher couldn't teach piano? No. He was a fantastic professor and knew his business, and so he taught. It wasn't how good of a piano player he is. I mean, look, look at these uh, Olympic gymnasts, Father. You think those dumpy 50-year-old gymnasts are able to do what those kids are doing? No way. But lo and behold, they have one Olympic gymnast followed by another Olympic gymnast followed by another Olympic gymnast, and they get gold medals. It's not about what you can do. It's about what you can teach. 
And, you know, this goes along with your sermon recently, Father, about Mary and Martha. Yes, Martha, great. You went and you did all this stuff, but your reference was you. Mary sat at the feet of the teacher and learned. Now, maybe Mary's going to betray what she taught. We don't know. We do know that she actually does show up at the crucifixion, so that's a little bit better than Peter. But anyway, she does sit and she learns, and Jesus affirms that sitting and learning is more valuable than running around doing these sorts of things, because you have to pass it on to the next generation. So, the amazing thing is, is when we look at 26, we see that Peter's betrayal is part of the teaching. The high priest and his attack against Jesus is a fulfillment of the prophet's. God's teaching is behind all of this. Jesus already knew that Peter was going to betray Jesus by the time the third rooster crowed. The only thing that's new here is that he wept bitterly. He felt bad about it. Okay. Now, this reminded me of something I was just reading about in the book of the Twelve. It's very interesting because as you read along in the book of the Twelve, you see that you know Hosea promises horrible things that are going to happen and the whole nation is going to be wiped out unless they learn their lesson. And then you get Joel where you actually have the whole land being destroyed and all the food and everything is being destroyed. But then you have Amos. So it didn't happen. The Lord said he was going to completely, utterly destroy them and then he didn't. They were punished, but they weren't wiped out. And then it happens again, and it happens again, and it happens again. Now, the nations, they see that they are wiped out. Edom gets wiped out. The Philistines get wiped out. But for some reason, God decides not to completely wipe out Israel. This is mercy. There's nothing deserving that Israel did so that they wouldn't be punished. What we see is that They are punished, but they're not utterly wiped out. And this is the reason why Jonah got upset. Jonah got upset because the Ninevites actually repented. They took the lesson, and they didn't get wiped out. And they said, God, you're not being consistent here. In the whole book of the Twelve, God's not being consistent. Because he keeps saying he's going to wipe Israel completely out, and then he doesn't do it. So Israel keeps seeing mercy after mercy after mercy. And the fact that Peter ends up here simply weeping bitterly, shows the mercy on Peter. The mercy that Peter enjoys is that he's not wiped out. He's not punished. He's not captured by the chief priests, even though everybody knew that he was with Jesus. That's the mercy. He fulfilled the teaching. He continues to teach by these words that Matthew records, but he survives even when perhaps his betrayal would not merit it. One key point that I want to stress, because I know how the Western ear works, and thanks be to God, my ear has been de-Westernized. You hear the word tears, and you hear the word mercy in the same sentence, and you begin to sentimentalize Peter. I want to make it very clear what Dr. Benton is saying before we begin. The mercy is not because of Peter's tears, The mercy is God's decision not to strike Peter. The mercy is a credit to God, not to Peter. And the tears are not a credit to Peter. The fact that Peter has time to cry is a credit to God, but the tears do not have a value 
in the way that Americans place value on emotion. This is not a psychological text. In that sense, there's obviously psychology always in the story, but this isn't about the deep meaning of tears. His tears are problematic. So please keep that in mind and don't fall in the trap of holding hands at the end of chapter 26 of Matthew. And the proof is in what's about to happen at the beginning of chapter 27. And it's not good news. In a way, what happens to Judas is also on Peter. Because Judas represents Peter's community. Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. I want you to hear what Matthew is saying. And this is a very uncomfortable verse if you are a teacher, a priest, a parent, or anyone in a position of responsibility. And I want to be clear, I'm not an egalitarian I don't think this verse is as bad for everyone as it is for the priest, the teacher, the bishop, or the person in a position of public authority. I don't think it's as bad for the community as it is for the priest. It's the fault of the priest and the bishop and the teacher if the people are ignorant of Scripture. It is the fault of the priest, the bishop, and the teacher if the community is led astray. Just like it's the fault of the parents when the children misbehave. You can disagree with me. I'm not interested in convincing you. I'm explaining how Scripture works. And as for my house and those in my care, we submit to Scripture and we accept its wisdom. So the fact that the priests and the elders, the teachers and the priests and the leaders of the people are conferring against Jesus to put him to death, and they're going to lead the people down this path, This puts a heavy burden on them, more than the people who will eventually join in. And there is a progression. There is a bad seed. There is such a thing as a bad seed. It's a bad teaching. It's like that old line from the Karate Kid films from the beloved 80s of our youth, Richard. Bad teacher produces bad disciple, period. It's a fact. You can't say that in 2021 because there's no such thing as a bad whatever. Bad is a trigger word, Father Mark. It makes me uncomfortable. Good! Because I'm a Bible guy. Discomfort is my natural state as a teacher. And discomfort is where I'd like to bring you. In the case of Peter, he has most definitely been given the correct seed by his teacher. If Peter goes off and messes it up because he prefers the bad seed, it's on him and no one else. He's of age. He's responsible. 
So let's understand that the teacher, first and foremost, the priest, the bishop, the elder, the parent, in whatever their scope of responsibility, they are responsible to teach the correct thing. And for someone who is assigned to teach God's Torah, we have a very clear understanding of what the correct thing is. And instead, they're getting together to figure out how to execute someone who's been teaching Torah? Not good news, Richard. When a student acts incorrectly, there's two logical reasons. One, because they received the wrong teaching, or two, because they received the correct teaching and rejected it. So when the student acts incorrectly, it is always the responsibility of the teacher to double down on the correct teaching. Whether a word was spoken incorrectly or not, it's too late now, but now one has to completely double down in making sure that this mistake does not happen again. And it just makes me think, when the sower is sowing the seed and it lands on the stone, should the sower be more careful? I don't know. The sower has to do the job of the sower, which is to make sure that the seed gets out there. And the teacher, by that, must make sure that the teaching gets out there. But most essentially, the teacher must remain faithful to that teaching that they received if they want to be a good student of the teaching that they received. And so this responsibility, as you said at the beginning of the episode, Father, is grim. It's a grim responsibility to have this teaching and to ensure that not a single letter is corrupt. We are responsible to teach our people in the parish. We, for example, know that the great entrance in the liturgy is not an entrance in the way that it is done today in the churches, Rich. We know that the gifts were brought in and that they were received for the liturgy of the Eucharist. We know that there was an entrance with the gospel. And if we don't explain that, and our people don't understand the liturgy in its original scriptural context, and instead they come up with a philosophical, theologized context that makes no sense in a scriptural setting, that's our fault, because we're not teaching. We're making stuff up. And that has consequences. We have to teach. Teach, teach, teach. And that takes work. Jesus, as you mentioned often in the last few episodes, repeatedly ignores what people ask him and say to him and responds passing by their premise, completely disregarding their premise, and saying what he has to say, which comes from his father's written instruction in the Old Testament, again and again and again. All he's doing is teaching and blowing by everybody until he runs out of breath on the cross. It's so critical. We cannot lose one second doing anything but repeating the teaching. I stopped posting on Facebook anything but the content of this work because everything we post on Facebook that doesn't pertain to the gospel is vanity. It's a waste of time. I don't post pictures. 
I don't post opinions. I greet people and I say happy birthday. Other than that, it's the podcast. Because what are you going to talk about? You're going to wax philosophical? Do I want the Lord to read my Facebook timeline on that day? Just think about that. Do you want the Lord to go through and see whose pictures you posted and whose pictures you didn't post and what pictures you posted and what you said about what and your opinion on some ismos? Ismos is the word we use from Galatians to describe your ism, your ideology. I believe in this and I'm against that. I'm going to show him he shouldn't think this. Keep showing people. Every time you show somebody, every time you try to make somebody understand what's wrong with their perspective, you've just wasted time not studying Greek. You've just wasted time not reciting the text to yourself or to your neighbor. And guess what the result is in verse 2? Because you were busy posting on Facebook. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. Violence is the result of people's Facebook feeds. And that is no joke, and that is no lie, Dr. Benton. Ignorance of the teaching really is the root of the problem that we ourselves see. What you say about Facebook, I couldn't say it loudly enough. I mean, that really is. I mean, the beginning of teaching is to literally turn off all the bad teaching that you're subjecting your eyeballs to. It's just too much. And here we see that the chief priests and elders deliver Jesus then to Pontius Pilate to the governor. So the religious authorities, the community authorities, turn Jesus over to the government authorities. And so we see a collusion. All those in power all of them cannot abide the teaching that Jesus is teaching. Jesus is going to continue doing it, and we saw that Peter had a tough time with the teaching himself, although, strangely, he followed the prophecy, he followed the words that Jesus said, that he was going to betray Jesus in spite of himself. So what God wills comes to pass, and the fact that they took Jesus and they did take him to death is fulfilling the prophets according to Jesus himself in chapter 26. In spite of themselves, these rulers are furthering the teaching in what they're doing. And this is the miracle of God's mercy that this destruction and this death still bring this seed to us so that it might perhaps bear fruit. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. There's a lot happening here, Richard, and I know with your background in Old Testament, you'll have plenty to say. But the one thing that jumps out at me right away is the fact that Judas, in his self-proclaimed guilt, which he has no right to decide, is also making a judgment against Jesus. And this is difficult for people to pick up on. It's easy to see why the chief priests and the elders and the leaders of the people meeting in council, plotting against Jesus, 
how to kill him, it's easy to see why they're wrong. It's easy to see why the chief priest declaring that Jesus committed blasphemy is wrong. But it's difficult to see why Judas feeling guilty and then proclaiming Jesus innocent is also guilty of the same sin even now. Because Matthew keeps insisting what Paul says also consistently in his letters, but Matthew brings it down on our heads with force, that no one may judge before the time. Remember the parable of the wheat and the tares. How can you say Jesus is innocent? How can you say Jesus is guilty? You, Judas, who represents Judah, Judea, the people of Israel, you, Judas, are not the judge. You cannot pronounce guilt or innocence. That is the whole sin of the circumcision party. They want to decide who's in and who's out, and there is only one judge seated on high in the heavens. And it ain't you, Judas. And now, those who are of repute in Jerusalem, and I'm using terminology on purpose for those who have ears to hear, because this is all about the dispute between Peter and Paul. Those who are of repute are washing their hands. They're washing their hands of Judas in his hour of need. That's not our problem. See to it yourself. We've taken our pound of glory from your flesh. We don't care what happens to you. We're shutting you out of the kingdom. This is Galatians being fulfilled here in Matthew, Richard. It's very sad. It's tragic. They are shutting Judas, who represents Israel, out of the kingdom by glorying in the flesh of God's people. It also reminds me of the book of the Twelve. The rulers are glorying in the weakness of those who are in their charge. It's plain as day. Had they sown the correct seed, Judas, Judas, Judea, <laughs> the people of that region, would have known that there was one judge, and they would not have judged the Christ, and Judas would now not be judging himself, and we would be in a different situation. The first thing that struck me, Father, when you read that verse, the way that your translation rendered felt remorse. And I thought that was an interesting translation because most other translations I've seen say repented. The first thing I wonder is if there is a theological need to say, well, if he really repented, how could he have gone and killed himself? So there might be some kind of theological motivation there because is it possible to hear that Judas actually repented but then killed himself? What does that mean and that sort of thing? We don't need to get into it, but... It's just remarkable that felt remorse, I don't know if this is about a feeling. I don't know if this is some kind of new attitude that he took, because in fact, he does act differently. Before he repented, he took money to betray Jesus, and after he repented, he gave the money back. Like, he did act differently. So it makes me think that there was, I don't want to say real repentance, because that's silly, because as you said, Father, we can't judge before the time. Was it real or not? That's up to the judge, not me, not Judas, not the elders of the chief priests, not even Pontius Pilate. So that's the first thing. Second, 
the 30 pieces of silver, this is another point, which I think we gloss over and we say, ooh, look it. This whole crucifixion is fulfilling the prophecy. But what betrayal and destruction and wickedness we're seeing here was all foreseen. This was already written about in its detail in the prophets. God already willed this, so to speak, that this is what was going to come to pass. So to say that this is all part of God's will, that Judas would sell him for 30 pieces of silver, that was according to God's will, because we knew this already in the prophecy. Did God like it? Did it make him happy? We don't know that. We just know that that's what was going to happen. And we know there's all kinds of destruction and death that happens according to God's will. Whether he liked it or not, it seems like he doesn't like it when I look at Hosea, but it's the only way that Israel is going to listen. And it's only with this teaching that we understand the gravitas of this betrayal that Judas engages in a way that Peter also engages. The chief priests are much more focused and they're much more faithful to their own teaching. Whether they give the 30 pieces of silver, whether they receive the 30 pieces of silver, it doesn't move them. That's why they say, we don't care. We got our guy. Like (laughs) This wasn't about getting a good bargain. We weren't going and looking at the bins at Walmart in order to see what kind of bargain we could get for our 30 pieces of silver. That's not what they were trying to do is find a bargain. Their job was to get Jesus and shut him up and not look bad to the government. And they did it. So if Judas feels bad or if Judas wants the 30 pieces of silver or doesn't want the 30 pieces of silver, they don't care. It's not about money to them. The chief priests are not greedy. They want what they want, but it's not about money for them. Judas was greedy and then decided, you know, it's not worth it. He couldn't handle it because there was some germination happening in his soul that the teaching was there that this is not okay. So there's something there. He did hear the teaching as much as Peter did. He wasn't there in the garden, but he got to hear the teaching Judas received the teaching as Peter heard the teaching, as did the other ten. We hear about Peter's betrayal, which was foreseen by Jesus, and we see Judas's betrayal, which is foreseen in the prophets. So this betrayal of Jesus is part of the teaching, and for the chief priests and the elders, they're going about their business as is expected. And as you brought up the betrayal of Peter, James, and John— in Galatians and elsewhere in the New Testament. They have their business, which is to be in charge of the people. And what they do with the teaching is a function of that. We see this also in the church institutions. They're going to use the teaching however they need to use the teaching to perpetuate their institution. And they're only going to care about what matters for their institution. If we say, well, hold on a second, the Book of the Twelve shows that destruction is imminent, and it's because of the work of our own hands. 
the people who believe in institutions. Well, yes, we understand, but the work of one hands, we can understand that in different ways. You know, once we dedicated the temple to God, then it's actually God's. It's not really the work of our hands. So as long as we're helping the growth of what God established, which is his church and his people, then whatever we do is fine. Nah, this is where it starts to become suspect, and this is where the teaching has to be checked against what was foretold by God and the prophets. The whole problem, Rich, in verse 4, is that the most important opportunity of any elder or any priest or any religious teacher is the opportunity to intervene in a moment of crisis with God's instruction for the sake of the people. The teacher is installed for the sake of the people. You were sent to teach to rescue the people from sin, to keep them on the path for their sake and for the common good, to take care of the people, to shepherd them with God's instruction. It's a big responsibility, and instead you're plotting to kill a teacher who happens to be the Lord's anointed. That's how you're using your time. And then when someone comes to you in despair, because they did something horrible, what do you do? You wash your hands of them and you shut them out and you say, not my problem? Is that what you do? You gave them a bad seed and you say, not my problem? It is your problem. You are responsible for what you teach. Jesus taught the correct thing, and he's going to take accountability for your sins, the fact that you rejected the correct thing. You are teaching even now the incorrect thing, and you're washing your hands? And what is it you're teaching? Exactly what Dr. Benton just said, that it's a good thing to build a building. So give me the 30 pieces of silver. Oh, don't, because it violates our blood money rules. And then Matthew's going to get the last laugh on you in verse 5, you and your collection. You know, the one that Herod took to build the temple in Jerusalem, the one that God has no interest in. And he threw the pieces of silver where? I'm going to stop and interrupt the verse. And it's a rhetorical question, and I'll read it again for Dr. Benton's sake. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed. And he went away and hanged himself. So when you should have preached the Torah to save a man's life, your building of stone condemned a man's life. A man who represents the flock that you were sent to shepherd with the Torah. So enjoy your money and enjoy your stones. They betrayed any kind of teaching when they don't care about innocent blood. He said, I killed someone who was innocent. I allowed someone innocent to die. And they say, you see. See, oopsie. You see. Not our problem. The silver, not the silver, like I said, it's of no interest to them. That he would throw them into the temple. I think it's interesting because we have a manuscript variant here. One says into the temple, and another one says in the temple. So he threw it in the temple, or he threw it into the temple. So was Judas in the temple, or was he not when he threw it? 
if Judas is inside the temple with them, is he conferring with them or is he on the outside throwing it into the temple? And I think that that's a fascinating image. I like that image. I'll have to defer to someone who knows more about textual criticism about how this decision was made, but according to the version that I see, and it follows the translation that you had, threw it into the temple. He wouldn't even enter into the temple when he cast out these pieces of silver, when he accused himself of killing an innocent person, of allowing an innocent person to die, he wouldn't even enter the temple. Now, he went and he hanged himself, and this one reminds me again of the Book of the Twelve, where every time, beginning with Adam, God says you're going to die, but then you don't die. God says he's going to wipe out the entire city, and he doesn't wipe out the entire city. He says he's going to destroy the entire earth, and he still leaves a remnant. He always leaves this remnant, which means we've got one more chance. God showed his mercy by giving us one more chance, not by withholding his hand and not letting us suffer, but by withholding his hand before we got to the extent that we deserve to suffer. But Judas took judgment into his own hand, and he destroyed himself, and he killed himself, thereby rejecting the mercy of God that perhaps would have allowed him to live in the way that Peter was allowed to live. So we know that Peter, for some reason, survived because he simply wept bitterly, but Judas judged himself and thereby took his own life. After hearing this text, I have the opposite reaction, Rich, that most people have, because people hear this and they get into theology and doomsday thinking about suicide and all of this stuff that isn't in the text. Is it a forgivable sin? Is it an unforgivable sin? That's not what I hear when I hear the story of Judas here in Matthew specifically. What I hear at the beginning of chapter 27 is that those who were given the responsibility to teach Israel, which Judas represents, he represents the people of Israel, Judea. Those who are responsible to teach failed in their duties. Remember that Peter is the apostle to the Jews. He's not the apostle to the nations. Paul is the apostle to the nations. So the priests and the elders have betrayed Jesus Christ. Peter, who is the apostle to the Jews, at this point in the story, has betrayed Jesus Christ. And Judas, who represents God's people, as a result, has been shut out of the kingdom and cut off from all hope. But the Lord Jesus Christ isn't finished doing his work in the Gospel of Matthew, and that's why we have no right to lose hope, even for Judas. No one has a right to pass judgment no one has a right to lose hope or to make any pronouncement about anything or anyone. Everything is in the palm of God's hand in the Gospel of Matthew. And especially with respect to Judas in this context, because he, insofar as he represents the community, 
was betrayed by those who were entrusted to teach the community. So Peter has the greater sin. It's profound. So Peter is being given a chance now with the Great Commission after the resurrection. That's the chance, Rich. And there's still hope for Israel. That's how I take this text, as grim as it is. I have a friend whose daughter is suffering very much of mental illness and has attempted suicide and that sort of thing. So I know that we have listeners who may have attempted suicide themselves and who have family members who may have succeeded or may not have succeeded. So I take that very seriously. What is amazing and what gives me hope from Scripture is that even when things are bleak and things are grim, for whatever reason, God irrationally offers hope and God irrationally offers mercy to those who are suffering. It doesn't mean that the suffering will not take place, but there is hope and there is always hope to the next generation. So I only hope that anyone here who is suffering in that way finds the help and finds the teaching that will lead them to this hope which surpasses understanding, which God offers us, and we see throughout the Book of the Twelve, and we see here as well. So, in their single-mindedness to eliminate Jesus, the one who comes to them suffering, the chief priests ignore. There is no space in their teaching for someone who is innocent, and there is no space in their teaching for the one who repents of killing someone who is innocent. This is the most wicked of teachings. And this is what gets piled on Judas's head. Now, Peter is in tough shape. I mean, we can't gloss over how deep of a betrayal this is. And thereby, how great a restoration, if we want to say, that Peter is commissioned as apostle to Israel. We often want to pile on Paul in his Saul days about how wicked he was, but Peter himself was a betrayer, and the two chief apostles would both be betrayers of Jesus. This is how God decides he wants his seed to be sown. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.